this is Julie. And this is Alicia. And you're listening to Getting, Getting Booked. Thanks for tuning in. It's our first episode. Um, so we're a little nervous, but we're excited. Um, we picked our first book, and here we are. Yeah, so that's Julie who was just talking. This is Alicia, just so you know our voices <laughs> and don't get confused as to who's who. Um, so before we really get into this month's pick, which was In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, we wanted to talk to y'all just a little bit about why we chose it, and then we will read the publisher's summary and then just sort of dive into the history a little bit of In Cold Blood because there's definitely some interesting facts and stuff to talk about, the history of it and the controversy of it and everything else. So, Julie, if you'd like to go yeah. ahead and chit-chat a little bit about why we chose it. Yeah, and even before that, we can just kind of break down like what the whole you know point of this podcast is. Yeah, um, it's we tried to we didn't want to do another you know murder, true crime podcast. There's a ton out there. There's already a lot to compete with. Um, this kind of felt more like we will probably stick to that theme as far as books and cozy mysteries, really, um, just that genre. But I feel like this one is different than other true crime podcasts because we are focused on. The book itself as opposed to the story um, and how the book is written and what the book is about and the author's perspective um, and this is sort of meant to be kind of a supplement for a book club if you're um, you know meeting with a group of friends or if you just don't have time for a book club consider us your book club now um, and our goal is to beginning of each month give you a book that we are going to review and you can have the whole month to read it and at the end we'll just talk about it with you yeah and we just really wanted to create a safe space where everybody from all over could just connect and I mean um, whether you're like she said busy or somebody like me where you experience a lot of social anxiety and you just don't necessarily feel comfortable getting together with a ton of people you don't know to start and talking about something in my opinion that's as intimate as a book like in cold blood it can be a little daunting especially like I said with a ton of people you don't necessarily know um, with that being said we will definitely be focusing once a month on uh, picking a book and going through all that down the road we're definitely going to be open to maybe doing like little mini episodes where we do share some uh, true crime stories or just interesting stories and we're definitely going to love having a couple of guests on we know a ton of really uh, awesome creative people who are authors and artists and stuff and we'd love to have them on and sort of talk with them about their craft and what they do and why they love it so much. So we'll definitely have that down the road, hopefully. So, and then naturally, if any of you guys have any other suggestions on stuff you would love to hear or know about, even if you'd like to get more into uh, writing and 
being an author and all of that, both Julie and I are aspiring authors and have works in progress that <laughs> quote unquote you... aspiring. <laughs> yeah. So nothing official yet, but uh, one day. Yeah, hopefully one day. But we're definitely more than happy to talk about that and get some yeah. published authors on the podcast as well. So y'all just let us know what you would like to hear. Yeah, we're um, always open for suggestions. Absolutely. We, yeah, as you said, we're pretty new to this, and so we're just kind of. Um, feeling around in the dark, I would say, for what we should be doing and um, getting into our groove. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So speaking of getting in the groove, we'll go ahead and just sort of jump yeah. into yeah. this month's pick, which again was In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Um, the reason we chose this um, was personally, me, Alicia, I had read this book previously many, many years ago when I was first getting into true crime, and this to me is sort of the epitome classic true crime novel as it was sort of the first of its kind from back in the day. So that is why um, I chose it, but Julie... um, Um, Yeah, so I was having um, coffee with Alicia one morning and when we were still trying to kind of decide on a theme for the podcast. We knew we wanted to do one based around books and obviously mysteries and and true crime. And she recommended this one. I had never read this book, but between this and Health for Skelter, I think those are the two kind of, I don't want to say the godfathers of true crime books, but kind of. uh, They're definitely two of the first, um, and it kind of spark the genre, I would say. Um, Truman Capote is known for a lot of other books, but I would say this one is probably the most um, famous one. I'd never read it, so we went over to my favorite used bookstore in Charleston, Sullivan's Trade a Book, shout out to them, and they had a copy, so I grabbed it there, and I finished it right before this episode. Yeah, same here. I definitely, I, I finished rereading it this morning. So if any of y'all out there did not finish the book this month, no worries at all. I feel bad. I feel you. <laughs> I totally understand. Um, so what we're going to do now is, um, Julie, if you would like to just go ahead and yeah. read the summary so that way if there are any folks out there who haven't even read the book but you're just tuning in to listen to just some great conversation then here's what that book is all about. Yeah, so this is the publisher's um, summary of the book. We got it off of um, Lit Lovers. It's, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a website that goes through all kinds of books, summaries, um, the author bio, reviews, sort of like Goodreads, mm-hmm. I, w- I would say. Um, I never used it until this. Yeah. But... Um, so, on November 9th, 15th, 1959, in the small town of Holcomb, Kansas, four members of the Clutter family were savagely murdered by blasts from a shotgun held a few inches from their faces. There was no apparent motive for the crime, and there were almost no clues. As Truman Capote reconstructs the murder and the investigation that led to the capture, trial, and the execution of the killers, he generates both mesmerizing suspense and astonishing empathy. And Cold Blood is a work that transcends its moment, yielding poignant insights into the nature of American violence. With the publication of this book, Capote 
permanently rip through the barrier separating crime reported from serious literature. As he reconstructs the murder and the investigation that led to the capture, trial, and execution of the killers, Capote generates suspense and empathy. The novel was actually the basis for Capote. It's a 2005 movie that starred Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he won both an Oscar and a Golden Globe for it. Um, and I mean, Truman Capote is kind of a legend. I think he also wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, yeah. that was obviously turned into the movie with Audrey Hepburn, which is wildly popular. Yeah. He also, I didn't know this until we started reading the book, he was best friends with Harper Lee, who is my favorite author. She wrote To Kill Mockingbird, mm-hmm. and I mean, she's an icon. She's an icon, mm-hmm. and yeah. apparently they're childhood best friends, and when he went to Holcomb right after this happened to investigate, she went with him, and I thought that was just a really cool, fun fact yeah. um, that I never would have known until I read this book. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff, and... We're definitely going to take a moment here to sort of talk about um, the book itself in Cold Blood and what sort of has made it what it is today and the discussions that sort of the, the, um, not conspiracy of it all, but just sort of the the gossip that's surrounded by In Cold Blood and why some people love it, some people hate it, all of that good stuff. So again, we got some misinformation off of lollitlovers.com. So um, In Cold Blood was inspired by a 300-word article that ran on page 39 of New York Times on Monday, November 16, 1959. The story describes the unexplained murder of the Carter family in rural Holcomb, Texas, or Kansas, not Texas. (laughs) In Cold Blood was serialized in The New Yorker in 1965 and published in hardcover by Random House in 1966. The quote-unquote nonfiction novel, as Capote labeled it, brought him literary acclaim and became an international bestseller. A feud between Capote and British arts critic Kenneth Tynan erupted in the pages of The Observer after Tynan's review of In Cold Blood implied that Capote wanted an execution so the book would have an effective ending. Uh, In Cold Blood brought Capote much praise from the literary community, but there were some who questioned certain events as reported in the book. Writing in Esquire in 1966, Philip K. Tompkins noted factual discrepancies after he traveled to Kansas and talked to some of the same people interviewed by Capote. In his article, Tompkins concluded, Capote has, in short, achieved a work of art. He has told exceedingly well a tale of high terror in his own way, but despite the brilliance of self-publicizing efforts, he has made both a tactical and moral error that will hurt him in the short run. By insisting that every word of his book is true, he has made himself vulnerable to those who readers who are prepared to examine seriously such a sweeping claim. True crime writer Jack Olson also commented on the fabrications. I recognized it as a work of art, but I know fakery when I see it, Olson says. Capote completely fabricated quotes and whole scenes. The book made something like $6 million in 1960s money, and nobody wanted to discuss anything wrong with a moneymaker like that in the publishing business. So, definitely there was a lot of 
um, you know, stuff surrounding it. It looks like, do we have something to throw in uh, here, too? Yes, I was going to say, a lot of the criticism um, actually came in 2005, um, the two surviving daughters of the Clutter family um, spoke to the media really for one of the first times since it, and let's just say there's no love lost between them and Truman Capote. He had gotten their permission to write an article for the New Yorker, and he he sort of represented them that it was going to be this tribute to the family, and then he never um, communicated what was going to be in it. He never interviewed them. He never talked to them. He wrote this sensational story, and um, they were pretty upset. They never went into specifics about what he got wrong, but they said a lot of it was um, his misrepresentation of the the wedding of Bonnie, um, which happened not too long after the the funeral for the family. He also misrepresented the family's finances. And then I think the thing that they were most upset about that I, I found when I was researching this was um, the way he portrayed the mother. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I accidentally mis I think I misspoke and said the daughter was named Bonnie. I meant the uh, mother. The yeah. mother. Um, the mother of Bonnie in the book is portrayed as this invalid kind of just mental patient, and I think that they disagree heavily on it, and mm -hmm. they had really hoped that he was going to write an article or something that was, you know, more representative of the family and he just he completely ignored them according to them and and just did exactly what he won't and wrote this you know sensationalized book that while it is entertaining and most of it is factual apparently there is some room for improvement yeah i mean the thing is i think like not any form of art it's going to seriously be left up to how somebody takes it each reader is going to be different as to how they see a situation and obviously he is an artist so he felt like probably while writing this you know I need to exaggerate this or embellish that but like what piece of true crime literature isn't like that because I feel yeah. like if it was very cut and dry it wouldn't be no, would a it. good story <laughs> yeah so I mean I think with um, Truman Capote, in his case, it was definitely just a matter of reconstructing not only the horrific crimes that took place, but really trying to have the reader get a grasp on the characters, the story, the setting, and everything without it being so sterile and like you're reading some sort of report. Yeah. Or like you're reading the files directly. I definitely agree. I I don't fault him for how he wrote the book. I obviously enjoyed the book. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they just couldn't separate themselves from from the book and the tragedy of meeting with their family. So I can see how yeah. they would be incredibly I sensitive about understand. it. Yeah. And so I don't fault him for it. But this wasn't my family that. Oh, no, and I don't murdered. him for having their opinion, not his, the family having their opinion either, because obviously that's something that's really sensitive and extremely personal, and it's like kind of shocking that they would e even be willing to let 
someone right. write a novel about it, let alone that. But at the same time, especially back then, because yeah. it's it's not a a crazy thing now. If some, if that happens, you kind of expect a you know a show on the ID channel or a a podcast or a book yeah. or something to be written about it, it to be in the media but back then there wasn't much of a media and what there was it was pretty slow you got your your news from the newspaper mm-hmm. there wasn't yeah and there definitely I mean obviously there was murder and there was stuff like that but this was really the beginning like the 50s and 60s were truly mm-hmm. the beginning of when we started taking psychology and deeper stuff into effect and society as a whole was the landscape of it was changing and violence and murder as a whole I feel like started becoming at this point more of a subject that the media was paying attention to and covering and people were listening to and honestly it was happening more often than it was before seemingly just because it was something that the media started to pick up on. Um, I guess we should, you just want to dive into the book and, and we can go yeah. section by section. Like he, one, one thing I admired about this book and it made it easy to follow was um, he splits the book into sections. Um, the first one is called The Last to See Them Alive. The next is Persons Unknown. And then we have Answer. And then the last one we have is um, the corner. The corner, and so for me, I took that to mean you know, last see them alive. Where he obviously has to embellish this part because he wasn't around for the last oh, conversations. Yeah. So with before the family. we get into that, we'll back up all the way to the front. Which, by the way, the um, yeah, the dedication is out. so sweet. And then I also like the the full title of the book is in cold blood a true account of multiple murder and its consequences which i think has really deep wonderful meaning um but just right off the bat you start off we dive in immediately and start um getting a description of the town holcomb itself and i think that the setting is so important because I think it really starts to paint the scene of why these murders were so shocking. Right. And why this got so much attention is because of the town. He calls it a village. Like, they don't even call yeah. it a town. They call it a village because it's so small and it's, everybody's connected. And, you know, I'm from an area like that. And it would rock the town, mm-hmm. especially back then. Like, um, everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Or you're related to them. Yeah, and there's no such thing as, like, strangers coming into town or anything mm-hmm. like that, especially back then. Um, they refer to it as lonesome because it's just these people that live in this village and, you know, there's not another one for miles. Um, all, they've got their little town and the school and that's about it. Yeah, like, the way he describes everything is so, it's really almost poetic um you know the way he describes holcomb is you know at one end of the town stands a stark old stucco structure the roof of which supports an electric sign dance but the dancing has ceased and the advertisement has been dark for several years and it just sort of he goes in to describe like really how much action this town is not seeing 
and just really, you know, this first bit gets into what the people of the town are like, which is a lot of farm ranchers from all walks of life. You've got German people, Irish people, Mexican, Japanese, and all of them are either growing something or raising cattle or all of that. The whole town is just really a simple rural farm town. My favorite description, he, he says the streets are unnamed, unshaded, and unpaved. Yes. Uh, I think that's a really good way to phrase that because the, this wasn't an area that was developed. It was developed enough that they were happy with it and they, they had a post office, but this wasn't somewhere that generated a lot of news or anything noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that this happened and all these people descended upon the town, these people were not prepared for something like this. It just was... Yeah, and how it sort of shook the the town afterward. Changed it. Yeah, definitely. And so after he talks about the town, we pretty much immediately go into the time, the, the setting for what is to lead up to be the murders, which is obviously right before Thanksgiving, uh, the holiday time, everybody's buzzing about. Um, and the Clutter family was supposed to host Thanksgiving at their house. So they're definitely planning this huge reunion. It's a really happy time. And then we get into the description of the family themselves. Um, So what do you think that, how how do you think Capote did as far as describing them and, Mm -hmm. and having you create sympathy for them? Like, were you more sympathetic to one of the characters above the other. Um, who who are you most affected by dying? I guess. Um, it's a it's a, it's it's a, a weird way to phrase one. that, but it's a heavy one. I mean, obviously the clear one is, and I feel like the one he focused on the most that I've noticed was Nancy. For sure, the daughter. She just like they talk about her, and it's like, um. All-American apple pie making. Precisely, yeah. Like, here is, like, they're just, they're, he's describing at one point, like, how Nancy is dating um, Bobby and how, like, disapproving Mr. Clutter <laughs> is because he's, like, she's too good for him. Like, she's got this big hopeful future. They were Catholic and the Clutters were Methodist. And... Oh, yeah. And, like, this whole thing. And then Nancy, to me, like, resonated with me because she's this, like, young girl with these hopes and dreams. She's going to move to New York City and mm-hmm. pursue, like, her, basically, her um, education and career and Another thing that's like crazy to me is how young yeah. they all are. Because when you're reading this book and you're reading about Mr. and Mrs. Clutter, you're thinking of these like older people, mm-hmm. but in reality, they're really only in their like 40s. mid to late 40s, yeah. which is wild to me. Yeah. Because uh, my boyfriend Jason is 40. To think about mm-hmm. the fact that like having it fully teenagers and like grown yeah, kids two are out of the house getting ready to be married at that age it's just such a different time absolutely so um how about you so nancy definitely was my I, and i think he did that on purpose mm-hmm. um i think he 
she was the most dynamic of them and I think a lot of people felt her loss as far as her and her dad were probably the ones that people probably not to say that they didn't miss the other two but those two were more involved in things as far as the community and what they were doing with it they were just a lot more involved as far as the neighbors go Nancy was always helping one of them especially the younger ones um she was a role model to people the the dad one thing that the surviving daughters wanted people to know was how much he always strive to help people but then on the flip side Capote talks about the brother and he sort of he makes him seem kind of like a a little bit of an outcast which honestly I would just consider him an introvert Mm -hmm. at this point in life but he I guess that was just not a word really that people used back then um so he made him seem kind of weird yeah, and I think back then society was just so different in the way that they would look at something. And then you're looking at somebody like Truman Capote, who's like obviously from a bigger city right. and is very social. And the Kenyan um, has one friend, and they make yeah. him seem weird. Yeah, and well, to him it was weird. Like yeah. these people were alien to him. Whereas the people of Holcomb would probably look at somebody like Truman Capote and be like, that's a weird dude. Yes, absolutely. So, again, it just all goes back to, like, the time and society and all of that. Um, But, yeah, the family themselves, I mean, I would think that for the time and everything else, was pretty much the epitome of an American family. Like, a true, like blue-collar worker, like, getting their hands dirty type of family, just really everything you thought of at the time that was, like, wholesome and good, despite, obviously, we talked about it a little bit, you know, Truman Capote paints this picture that Mrs. Clutter was, you know, invalid and a little looney tune, but at the same time, this was a time period in which people didn't really acknowledge mental illness. They still, they just, <laughs> most people, a lot of yeah. people still don't. So imagine yeah. in the 60s, 50s, 60s, I mean, this poor woman probably just need the right kind of medicine. She probably just had like regular run of the mill depression. So she liked to sleep late. Um, yeah. She was always kind of just sad. Yeah. She, she tried to participate, but she just didn't have the energy. Um, mm-hmm. And anybody has dealt with depression, that's a very normal way to act. And back then, medicine probably wasn't as readily available. It's not like this was, you know, the 1800s, but no help. And we'll get into more of that. Yeah, well, it kind of was the like book. the 1800s in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> might as well have have like a single, they probably had like one. Doctor. doctor who probably didn't even know the slightest about psychiatric or mental yeah. health in and, general. And so. that theme comes up further in the book um, as it goes along with the psychiatric stuff um, and how that has it becomes more prevalent. And, and they talk about how it's going to be a, a big deal, but yeah, it, it's but, just I mean, not there yet. People forget that during the 50s and even well into the 60s, women were still being sent to mental hospitals <laughs> for being gay. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's like, oh, you're gay, you gotta go. 
to yeah. the, the mental hospital. So yeah, I mean, mental health just wasn't really a, it was really taboo. It wasn't something you regularly talked about. And so in a way, I really sympathize with Mrs. Clutter and I just have, you know, a little bit of compassion for her considering yeah. everything. But it is really obvious that um, Mr. Clutter and Mrs. Clutter like did they're love each people. other yeah. and they're good people and they have a good heart and their whole family mm-hmm. did. He they was, didn't have a mean bone in their body. He was very supportive um, of her and, mm-hmm. and everybody, but he was especially doting on her because he, he really loved her. You could mm-hmm. just tell from the way Capote structures the book. Um, and I assume he got a lot of this from just stories throughout town after all of it with people talking um he he really inserted himself into the town Mm -hmm. um because he had to first off but um, i imagine that's where he just got all of these stories and it says a lot about the impression they left on people because that's the stories that were being you know floated around about them the rumors were all good things they were just good people yeah and they really um you know, want, uh, they, I think they, he really, Truman Capote did write, if it's not all 100% true, it does paint a really good picture right. of what kind-hearted people they are, just so you can have compassion as a reader for these people and connect with them. I think that maybe his whole point was writing each character to relate to somebody. Yes, exactly. Making Julie's holding up a note to show like exactly what I'm about to say that he wanted the reader to connect with, if not all of the clutters, one of them. I mean, just reading it, I see myself in every single one of these people, and I think anybody can. I mean, it was definitely a different time. I mean, Mr. Clutter was like a very religious man, didn't believe in drinking, didn't believe in doing, um, smoking tobacco, like literally. Pretty straight laced. Didn't even drink coffee. Yeah. Like just very Very straight straight laced. And um, yeah, the note I was holding up to show her, the book I got was the used book and the girl who had it before me, I guess it had been for a school project, and so throughout the book, it's littered with notes. Um, she got a hundred though. Shout out to her. Yeah, I won't say her name on air, but um, <laughs> she must be from the Charleston area. But uh, the note says that Capote gets the reader attached to the clutters and then makes everybody depressed after their death. Um, yeah. And for a high school student, I thought that was pretty yeah insightful. I assume she was in high school by the way she she writes. Um, I just thought that was interesting and it's very true. Yeah, so now we get into, after we talk about the family, we start uh, the great thing that Truman Capote does is we are constantly throughout the book switching between the clutters Mm -hmm. and investigators and detectives and that side of the story Mm -hmm. and the murderers um dick and perry so we start getting into um the beginning of their journey into this crime together essentially so we're talking about um you know dick's how he was the one who really came up with this idea of the big score and how Perry is just sort of his 
um, buddy in this, very gullible and easily influenced, and obviously we're going to get really deep into the characters later on in this book. Excellent foreshadowing, but, I think, though. Yes, just That's, really, just the like I said, the beginning, the, the right. tip of the iceberg with these characters, and, you know, you're immediately... Dick is interesting, but Perry is somebody who you immediately read as such a complex individual. He is, yeah. He is both delicate and strong. He is both egotistical, but also easily hurt emotionally. And you just really, really, really get into all of their character and um, you literally are starting their drive. And they both... To Holcomb. They both have these grand plans and they're they're very they're dreamers and I mm -hmm. think it's funny because neither one of them has led a life that would inspire dreams um, they have done some traveling but it, it, they just have this view of themselves that they think that they deserve you know this life of luxury um, and it's very, they're very, it's complex. very interesting. Yeah, it's they're very complex character, and we'll definitely be getting into that. But yeah, you can see pretty much immediately that Dick is a little bit more practical. He was just somebody who was extremely masculine and wanted to live the American dream and have a ton of money, and money was really his motivation. Where Perry, I would say, was all about adventure and these Notoriety. really ideal well more like an idealistic life like he really mm -hmm. thought they were going to go to Mexico and become like going looking for <laughs> treasure and stuff that isn't really realistic and yeah. like I said we'll definitely be getting into it later but I think that the that Perry himself had these dreams and these ideas because he had such a god-awful life and yeah. I think that he was just trying to think of literally this absolute dream so we get into that and we literally um so we start off with them the first bit we read is literally the beginning of their drive to Holcomb to commit the crime and after we cut out from that we go straight into basically the family's last night Right. together um this is where a lot of discussion was about the um the families what was actually said and all of that because obviously there's stuff where it's like phone conversations that were had and what right. they're eating and these very specific details but um you really start to in this part get to know nancy in her character and um, also a little bit about her mother. One piece that really struck me was when Nancy's friend was coming over to make the cherry pie. Yeah, the little and, girl. Yes, and Nancy had to leave because she had other social um, obligations. There's this quote directly that says, that describes what her friend got from her mom which was um it said but it was her eyes wide apart darkly translucent like ale held to the light that made her immediately likable 
that at once announced her lack of suspicion, her consideration, and yet so easily triggered kindliness. So, I mean, there's definitely some positives in there about her mother that would make you immediately like her. Yeah, she was very likable, and she was sad, and I just, I kind of wanted to give her a hug, especially the sentence where she's talking to the little girl, um, Jolene, and she says, forgive me, dear, I'm sure you'll never know what it is to be tired, I'm sure you'll always be happy. Yeah. Um, and it just was so sad, and, and you could tell she was, she's not a mean lady, she was not somebody scary, who I think that a lot of people in that town probably made her out to be this scary woman who had gone to this institution a couple of times. She was just sad, and she just wanted to be, you know, present, but there was just something keeping her from that. Yeah. So you definitely get to know that, and then we're still flip-flopping between, obviously, the family and um, the murderers and everything. Um, So I guess we'll just... um, we have our books here. I'm sure you can hear us flipping through them. <laughs> Sorry about the background noise. Um, but, I mean, there's just so much to unpack with the family and their characters. We could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But really, the, the takeaway from the family is that they are so deeply kind and American mm-hmm. and wholesome and everything that was positive about America at that time. I'd really love to talk more. Right, and about. I think, but I don't think the book itself is necessarily focusing on the victims as much as it is the, the killers. Um, yeah, and unfortunately... Which is how a lot I mean, of true crime, I feel like, is. Well, yeah, Capote really uh, did create a relationship with the murderers. I mean, talking with them and interviewing them, you get to know them better and their character, obviously. Um, so in the first part, we start off with Dick's description um you know what he looked like heavily tattooed but other than that like very classic american looking boy blonde hair blue eyed individual um the only thing that really struck me immediately is that when truman capote is talking about him, he does share that he got into a car accident in 1950 where he had a head injury. And as we all know, all those true crime lovers, head injuries are really consistent in these serial serial killers killers, and murderers. Like it's almost across the board that all these people have head injuries. So I was like, whoa, right when I saw that. When I saw that, and then, you know, that, that part was very interesting and then it was even more interesting when you realize that Perry also got into a car accident well motorcycle motorcycle. accident um and it doesn't talk as much about head injury in that one but you know obviously you know motorcycles above anything are more dangerous than cars so there's bound to be some type of head injury you know whether they talked about that as much or not but that's what you were saying yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely, we learned that almost immediately, and it, I definitely re-noted that, and was like, that's crazy. Um, and then now we're sort of 
setting off into their journey of going to Holcomb and really the beginning of the end, essentially. Exactly. Um, but there was one part before it happened that really, um, you know, his neighbor, the last person, Mr. Clutter, the last person to see Mr. Clutter alive was actually his friend, um, who was the Japanese woman. She saw him and she said to him that she was like, look, Herb, um, you, you're different. The way you can stand up and talk to hundreds of people, thousands, and be so easy, convince anybody about whatever, just nothing scares you. Yeah, she does. Yes, and she says, um, I can't imagine you afraid no matter what happened, you talk your way out of it. And that was literally the last conversation that Mr. Clutter had with one of his neighbors, and I thought that was definitely foreshadowing for sure and was really interesting. And I wonder... I I think it comes into play big time as we dive into... I wonder if, um, I mean, I, I assume he did, but I wonder if, if Truman Capote heard that she was the last one and scouted her out to find out if that was true, if, the, if she really was the last person that he mm-hmm. conversed with, and what did they talk about. Um, so I just wondered if that was 100% accurate. Like, that would be very interesting. It is, because I know later on in the book she had said that to other people as well. Right. She was like, oh my yeah. gosh, did you know the last time I saw I him, this is what I said to him. Like, how crazy is that? Which would be very, you know, alarming. That's not something you would forget. If you knew you were the last person to see him, you would certainly remember every word of what you talk about mm-hmm. and um then after that you learn about their last night and conversations they were having with their friends and like much like the title says of this particular part of the novel the last to see them alive um it goes again right back to dick and perry in the car on their way to holcomb and their whole arguments about needing black stockings black stockings for their family you start to really get to see perry in this light where he was sort of um childlike in the things and his weird superstitions and how he just didn't have a good feeling about all this and um you could tell that dick was more the experienced criminal um not murderer when i say criminal i mean he was somebody who stole a lot i think he uh, well he looked at it like like it was a job yeah he didn't see it as this adventure he it was just his his next job yeah so here we have um you know the conversations between dick and perry and capote even wrote the plan was dick's from First footfall to final silence, flawlessly devised in Dick's mind. He said, you know, Dick was very clear about no witnesses. And he also, it's crazy to me that he was talking to Perry and was like, because Perry had been asking how many people to expect. And he's like, well, it could be nobody. It could be the family, which is the mom, the dad, and the two kids. Or... Because it's Thanksgiving, there could be up to 12 people there, which I wonder, I mean, obviously throughout the whole thing, you're like, what would have happened if it was just slightly 
if there's things that had just gone slightly different right or in any little way shape or form it would have changed everything and if bobby had been there i mean bobby escaped with his life about you know an hour and a half hour and a half two hours before mm -hmm. they got there um so I'm sure he, Bobby, for those of you that, that didn't read, um, was Nancy's longtime boyfriend that we were talking about. I don't know if we mentioned his name at the beginning, but he was, as far as I know, the last person to see them alive at the house. Yeah, so after um, we, like, skip the part about, um, you know, them on their way, essentially... They we they talk about how uh, Nancy had invited him over to watch mm -hmm. TV for a little bit and just hang out because Bobby lived right up the road again right. very small town very um, I think they had been in a fight so this was her trying to yeah smooth things over and and invite him back into her life and he. It was really sad because he talked about being so hopeful that she was going to start wearing his class ring again, and and they were they were going to be fine, and then that obviously did not pan out that way. And the true person, so after Bobby had left, the the person who the absolute last person to see them alive was Mr. Helm, which was the right. farm hand who lived on the property. And um, he uh, did say that, and I highlighted it because it gave me chills. He said, and that he was to testify the next day was the last time I had seen them. Nancy leading old babe off to the barn, like I said, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. So in Mr. Helm, like he saw the family, Bobby had come and said bye. Uh, Mr. Clutter had had a meeting earlier that evening the with the life sale. insurance salesman. It was just business as usual on the mm -hmm. farm. And I mean, Mr. Helm clearly couldn't even begin to imagine what horrors were about to take place. Right. So, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get to my book to the part where we're back now with... Um, the murderers so they after we hear about that last um, piece of where the last person to see them alive we are now back to talking about the murderers themselves and we're diving a little bit more into their background and into their um, criminal history right. and everything else and the part I'm at right now is we're talking about um, Perry a little bit more and you start to really see his paranoia right. taken a play um, he was compuls compulsively superstitious and a super super believer of fate and he was just very all of that and so you really get to know and how sensitive and interesting he is. he is and I actually I think this is the part that oh that kind of lost me a few times I never really quite understood Willie J mm -hmm. in all of this I don't know if you're at that part yet I'm mm -hmm. 
on page 42 and 43, um, he just, to me, was sort of this, like, God figure to Perry, and I never quite understood why. Um, I guess he just, Perry was always searching for some, to be the smartest person in the room, and Willie J, I guess, just was his inspiration for it. I don't, I don't know. I never really understood that part. So I hope maybe you can yeah. it will shed some light on him for me if other people are like that. Yeah, well, I think it really you start to see the complexity of Perry through his friendship with Willie J because you have somebody like Perry who is very clearly mentally ill and. Right paranoid and all that but he's able still to connect with this mm. individual who's obviously very religious and Perry obviously due to his past his absolutely horrific life in the Catholic orphanage system yeah, was very not terrible about religion because of that trauma but I think that Willie J was one of the first people to see truly see Perry yeah. and understand him. And I think that's why we're sort of getting to learn about Willie J is because you're really, really, truly seeing not only Perry as a criminal in the system, but as a criminal in the system who is way more complex than just your run-of-the-mill criminal like right. somebody like Dick. Right. Who, yes, had a head injury and is a very interesting individual, but you could basically look at him and say, he this is, is just is. this criminal. Whereas Perry mm-hmm. is really somebody who did everything he did almost without motivation most of the time. It was almost like he only committed crime out of necessity, not because he wanted to whereas somebody like dick who has very i personally think sociopathic tendencies where in his mind his motivation is money and greed yeah and power like at some point in the book perry's talking about dick and he says dick is the kind of guy who could have a hundred dollars in his pocket and would still steal gum whereas perry is the type of person who just doesn't, doesn't fit into society. Yeah. And because he doesn't fit into society, just feels like he doesn't and because of his intelligence doesn't intelligence doesn't need to abide by society's rules and laws mm-hmm. and doesn't really care to or want to and really will only steal and do all of that just out of complete necessity. I did think, I think it was funny that he was a uh, uh, a war hero, military man. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the complete opposite of of a soldier. Like he he hated, you know, being told what to do and uh, and and following the law. And then he was in the military where you do that. Um, obviously, this comes up further in the book, but even in the military, he he would do things to. Um, try and get around certain things and yeah um, like cutting the hole in the floorboard yeah to make the thing warmer and all of that so but I think Willie J was just sort of um I think he was introduced just because he I think like 
he cared about him. He cared about him, and also it just goes to show that if Perry, like when he got out, let's say he decided to meet up with Willie J instead of Dick, like they were how saying. different his life could have yeah. been. And Dick was somebody that was described as like a really fun person, mm-hmm. but was just basically really a shallow individual yeah. who wanted nothing but money and power and this American dream and didn't really care about anybody else other than himself. And the only time he would care about other people is if it was to advance right. himself. So in any time he was with Perry or caring about Perry, it's because he felt he had to in order to like get away with the crime or needed help with the crime yeah or needed something from him i always i feel like dick felt that he got the short end of the stick they talk a lot about how he had been this top athlete in high school and had received a scholarship to go to these different colleges but his father i think even blames himself a little in the book that he wasn't able to go to the colleges because even with the scholarship they couldn't pay for the rest of it um, and I think Dick probably had some resentment about that because it could have led to a life of of a lot more for him. Um, not that that would have, I don't think that would have stopped him. He he had a lot of good stuff going for him even regardless of that. And he still, he messed it all up. So, I don't know. I, I definitely think Perry is the more complex of the two as far as um, the why. He sort of, the serial killer that you are fascinated by because you can't figure them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's rankings of killers um, and the people like um, you know Ted Bundy are more fascinating than the ones who just kill the you know grocery store clerk because they're trying to rob them. I, mean, yeah. I feel like it's just a different kind of, of murder, and that's what what intrigues people about serial killers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, a lot of the draw is the psychology behind it and the how these people really work. Like, their brain work is so different mm-hmm. than anything I it can relate to because obviously <laughs> thankfully <laughs> thankfully yeah. we can't relate yeah so it's it's something where it fascinates me because i'm just not that at all so it's always interesting to read about that um so we sort of move through the whole willie j thing and then we yeah we talked about how bobby and his last visit there and then basically it goes into um, the family getting ready to go to bed and go to sleep. And then we bounce back to um, Perry and Dick, who are now in Holcomb. And they are basically pulling up um, to the house. And then we start off with, uh, essentially, the, the following day. Can we so. just talk first for a second <laughs> it kind of made me giggle because i don't know if anyone else picked up on this but they must have had a way better sense of direction than i have right. because um, we find out later how dick found out about this and i'm not going to talk about it yet but we found out how he found out about this house and basically he is getting to this house in the middle of nowhere 
just yeah. off of straight memory from being told about it by somebody. And I can barely get down the street without my GPS. And the area I'm from, if you know anybody listening has been to my parents' house, it is in the middle of nowhere. You can't find it unless you're told how to get there. And that is what I kept picturing was how in the world they knew how to get there. And I think they even were kind of concerned that they were at the wrong spot because it's so far out in the middle of nowhere and that they didn't have a map to get there. Their house isn't on a map. And I just thought it was interesting. Like people back then must have been way better at this because I would have gotten lost in in the middle of the night in the middle of Kansas and that's what I'm saying. Like, think about this. Like, there's so many points in the storyline where something was just slightly different. Mm-hmm. Like, if something had gone slightly different, this wouldn't have happened. Right. So, like, let's say, for instance, they did get lost and they ended up at the wrong house. Like, who would they have come across? Like, right. what would have happened? Would it have been that they were just shot on sight immediately if they were ending up in a, at a family's house who weren't as trusting? Right. And as calm or if they've as been the away. Clutters, or yeah, if they, they went to somewhere when people were awake or not home at all. You know, you just think about mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we do get into the following morning, which is a Sunday, and they're they're basically every Sunday the clutters attend church as they're very religious individuals right. and the whole question arises as to you know that the first thing that's brought to the, the anybody's attention that would make them think something was wrong was that um Susan Nancy's best friend Nancy's best friend would go to church with her family right and she had not heard a peep from them they were late and she was like this is so unusual and I highlighted it says can you imagine mr. clutter missing church just to sleep because her mom's like oh maybe they slept in yeah whatever and she's like no 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 that's not normal and also if there's any change of plan like they would have called me this is weird I've tried calling their house like and I kept calling their house and nobody's answering so we need to go and make sure they're okay. Right. So, unfortunately, um, they head to the clutter's home. So they get there, and the kitchen door, of course, isn't locked. And they walk in, and immediately, you know, Nancy being Susan's best friend is... So Susan and the other girl. What was the other girl's name? Um, I, I, I'm looking and I can't find it. And I, I just think it was was it her not her mother that was with her? No. No, she was. I was Nancy, another young Nancy, not Nancy. It was Susan. Susan and another young girl who found her. I want to say. I'm not sure. I hate to throw us off, but I know Susan. Oh, you know what it was? It's Na- the other girl's name was Nancy. Oh Nancy yeah, Ewald. Okay, so I knew Susan that. Nancy. It's confusing because they were really good friends with Nancy Clutter. Exactly. So. Okay, I knew that there was. That's where the confusion was coming in. Sorry about that. Susan was Nancy's best friend, though. Yeah, and they're and Nancy Ewald's father is the one who drove them there right. to go investigate. Yes. So he just like sits in the car. He doesn't even think anything's going to be remotely wrong, right. which is why, why he would you? 
Yeah, because this is the type of town where you don't think it, and even the girls didn't think it. And so Mr. Ewald is like, all right, girls, go on ahead. Again, the kitchen door is unlocked. They go in. And, Which um, is not unusual, I would imagine. Not the kitchen at all. door being unlocked is something that you would expect, especially at that time of day. Um, yeah. Especially running a farm, you'd be up pretty early. And Nancy um, Ewalt is the one who heads directly to Nancy's room because obviously that's their friend. Yep. So they're they kind of see some stuff is out of place, but they head up the stairs. They open the door to a room and are immediately greeted with. Absolute horror. I cannot even imagine. Um, just blood everywhere. Awful. And they run out and they're screaming to Mr. Ewald. They're like, she's dead. Nancy's dead. And he and Susan is in complete denial. She's like, it's a nosebleed. And Right, which was honestly just so sad. Yeah, and Nancy's like, no, there's blood on the walls. She's dead. And Mr. Ewald... That poor you guy know. is probably, if, if those girls are anything like teenage girls, you know, like I was or like are now, where they're just incredibly dramatic and they were probably high-pitched screaming, just freaking out. He probably couldn't figure out what they were saying and was just, just knew his daughter was in a, a panic and he probably didn't know what he was about to walk into. Yeah, and... Well, he, I don't even think he did. So they, he immediately, um, his first thought, he said that he thought that the kid, that she says the child was hurt. Mm-hmm. So he immediately goes in and tries to call um, an ambulance right. and notices the wires have been cut. And so that's like really the first sign of foul play. Yeah. Like something here is off because again, they're in such a deep denial because things like this don't happen Yeah, to them. In their town, so obviously they have to drive somewhere. Yes, they go back. I think to the Kidwell's house, right? And call an ambulance, and the police come, and all of that. And they immediately um, think that I think is super interesting that the immediately think Bonnie had done something, right? Because of her um, mental illness um so that was like really the first thought of most people because they're they mrs kidwell is going what happened what happened obani like you were so happy you told me you know you'd never be sick again you could just like you said you get the feeling that they thought that bonnie had something to do with it which mm-hmm. is not you know fair but for them that was the first effort of them trying to make some sense of it which stuff like this you can't make sense of yeah so they obviously now were um into the part where the sheriff's office is there and they're describing everything do you think that the description of the crime scene was too brutal or do you think it was well done because again that was a topic of conversation with a lot of people um i didn't think it was too brutal for me um granted i i watch a lot of shows about this i read a lot of stuff like this i thought that it was very descriptive um you know it it described how they found them what they were wearing how they had been killed yeah um, I, I didn't think it was 
too much. I mean, if, again, if this was somebody I knew and and or a relative of mine, I I can't say I would want to read about it, but it, it was necessary for the story and it was necessary mm -hmm. for the trial. Um, this is the police is their job to go in and make these descriptions and that's the only way that Truman Capote would have known this stuff is to come out through those reports and all of that. So I think he did a good job with, you know, just reiterating what the, the reports would have said. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with that. I think it was, you know, well done to well done to put together a picture and really get an idea of how brutal right it was, especially considering the time. Um He couldn't just say they walked in, four people, the, the four family members were shot in the head, and that's all he says. Like, he, he has to be descriptive. He's, he's a writer. That's what, mm -hmm. that's what we do. And so, naturally, in a small town like this, you start dealing with the words gotten out. <laughs> right. And you get, like, a really mixed emotions of people in denial, people in other shock, in shock, like, just absolutely can't seem to process it and immediately just basically starts a fire in the community and changing it as a whole. Well, it just freaked everybody. them out. Yeah. They, they thought maybe it was one of them. They didn't know who to trust and they were, you know, it went from this town where they never locked their doors to they didn't trust the person sitting next to them at, at lunch. Yeah. And I mean, you really start to see the yeah the beginnings of that the aftermath of it all and then um the also the aftermath for the killers which is really not a whole lot they basically did the deed went about their business and then next thing you know dick's at home eating dinner with his family which i think is just like absolutely wild so we now are into the second part, Persons Unknown. And this is really where we get to know the two guys, mm -hmm. um, get to be, I don't know, you just, you start to learn more about them um, to the point in Capote, this is just where his writing comes in. He makes you almost feel like you're a part of their friend group. Yeah. Which is just really alarming, but it is the mark of a good writer is to put you in that position. And I don't read a lot of nonfiction other than, you know, some true crime, but it's just not my preferred thing to read. Um, I'll, I like to watch it as opposed to reading it, but he mm -hmm. does such a good job. Half the time, you can't even tell that this is, you know, nonfiction. You feel like you're in the middle of a story. Yes, and um, you really, you saw, on top of getting to know the characters more and all that before even then, you're now being introduced to the detectives and oh, yeah. their whole team of people, because obviously a town like this is not equipped for a crime no. like this. The FBI yes. comes in, and that's how you know it got serious. Yeah, and then you really are also dealing with a town that is also broken but really eager 
to find answers. I mean, you have yeah. people who are out in their hunting gear and they're not going hunting. They're literally going to try to find evidence, something. The discarded shotgun, they're still looking for it. The, the dagger maybe had been thrown in the river. Like, right. people it's, are just trying to find it. It's really, it's a lot of vigilantes. Um, and I don't know if that's the right word of, I'm thinking of. It's more just, and again, I, I the whole time I'm reading this, I'm just picturing the town I grew up in, how people would react to something like this. Um, you know, nothing like this happens regularly. Like, you know, for instance, if this was New York City, Truman Capote probably would never even heard about it. And if he did, it would have been a blip on his, his news radar because things like this are pretty common in more populated areas. Of course, something this brutal isn't always, but in, in Holcomb, that's, that's literally the only thing they had going on, and so their world stopped. And these these men wanted to help, and they wanted to go out and and try and get this solved because the women in their life, I'm I'm sure, were they scared. were also scared. But the women were just terrified, and also for their families. I mean, how heartbreaking is it that their friends have to go into their house and like gather their stuff that's soaked in blood and, and then burn clean it and clean it. God, and, and I think that actually highlighted a lot of what is good about a small town. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not like they had these cleaning services back then that you could call to come and do stuff like this, but they went and did that out of the goodness of their hearts because they knew that the family was going to have to come and stay there, which is also terrifying. I don't know how they did that, but I guess it was more of a necessity than a desire. Yeah, and so we Sorry, are... I got a little off track, but... No, no, it's good, because, I mean, you come from a community that's really similar, and it's definitely interesting. So we, um, after getting to know all that, we're introduced to the main detective on the case, which is um, Al Dewey. Yeah. Um, detective Dewey. Poor Dewey. And he's a... Small, a I think he's a detective special agent. The sheriff, know. isn't he? No, Earl Robinson. Oh, I confused him with the sheriff. Um, but he is. They're both the, very um, involved. Well, he was in the FBI, and That's I right. think now he's a special agent. But he um, was very. He lived close to the community. Right. Like his wife knew the uh, Mrs. Clutter and yeah. all of that. So. And on top of that, you have a couple of other special agents. You have Harold Nye, Roy Church, and Clarence Dunce, who are part of uh, Dewey's team. And this quote from Dewey basically sums it up. He said, But even if I hadn't known the family and liked them so well, I wouldn't feel any different because I've seen some bad things. I sure as hell have, but nothing so vicious as this. However long it takes, and maybe the rest of my life, I'm going to know what happened in that house, the why and who. So you're really starting mm -hmm. to get to know Dewey, get to know his background, and get to know why he's so tied to this case and what will basically consume him up until oh, yeah. the very end. Like throughout the whole book, you learn about how much this case consumed his life. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. I, I thought that going the way Capote goes through the the initial start to the investigation is a good look at 
how unprepared they were for something like this. Um, they just, they had never dealt with it. I think they said there, there had been, you know, a murder once before, back in the 20s, maybe. Um, but they just had no precedent for it, and they really didn't know where to start. And they were they were very proud of the one guy who had a camera who took pictures. Yeah, um, which, which were, ended up being key. Yeah, they really were key evidence. Very important. Which that's something that we we kind of laugh at now because of course that's something that that happens at a crime scene. Um, of course, it's important and would be used as evidence, and that's just standard for investigations now, um, but back then, I mean, people, people didn't just have cameras, and they were just very proud of that, and I remember thinking that, that you could you could obviously tell, because this book was published in 65, which these happened before that, um, and I just, I don't know, that stuck out to me. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting how, because Dewey knew the family, like you said, Mr. Clutter, like if he he doesn't believe that um, Mr. Clutter wouldn't have fought back. Like, he mm-hmm. says if he would have fought back, he thought his family was in danger, and there really wasn't too much of a sign of struggle. And again, you yeah. really will get to know that later on in the book as we hear the um, statement yeah. from the killers. But yeah, you have to get to know more about the case, their motivations to why they're so fueled to find it. Obviously, Dewey's wife is freaked out. He knows the uh, yeah. whole community's freaked out. They're really eager to um, to get to get get to the bottom of it. I and mean, they you just they descri- go on to describe how shaken the community is. And they talk. It's funny they they kind of break down through each rumor and they talk about how we're not going to speculate. We're not going to, we're going to talk facts. We're not going to talk about just wild theories because mm-hmm. rumors and the rumor mill, even back then without all the technology we have now, those rumors get around quick and there's, you know, everybody's coming up with some reason, some way to justify how this could have happened because that's the only way you can get through grief most of the time is just to to find a why and no one could come up with a why the cops couldn't the the town didn't know anything it it just it was so random that people were spinning in circles trying to figure it out this wasn't somebody that had issues with people this wasn't you know this mean man who had enemies um they said these these poor cops are just they just don't have a lot to go off of no and why would they because i mean again nothing like this really happened there wasn't really any the clutters were just such a wonderful family they didn't know anybody who would want to kill them and it's very much so emphasized that mr clutter while he had money he never had cash money right it was all in accounts he was a very wise man property his money he was a very conservative man and, you know, so why would he have just wads of cash on him, which is another reason why they're just so confused as to why somebody would do what they did. I feel um, like uh, cops now, the first thing they would have looked at was the uh, life insurance policy that got taken out yeah. hours before. And then they kind of brushed over and they kind of looked into it. But I feel like it's just so much more, maybe people are more pessimistic now um, and it's been seen yeah. a lot. But I would have 
my first thought would have been, okay, well, who's profiting off of this? You know, it would have been one of the surviving daughters, and I probably would have gone down this rabbit hole of them hiring somebody to do this. Oh, yeah. Um, they never seemed to do that. Thought, yeah, they yeah. never crossed their mind that that could be a thing that people did. Yeah, um, I just don't think that was something they thought of back then. But now I feel like if you take out an insurance policy and you get murdered a few hours later, that's more than just a coincidence. I think that's how people view it now. But back then, I mean, I don't even, there were probably plenty of people that didn't have life insurance back then. You know, I don't it's, think it's it was very pretty common. rare. It was a very different time. Exactly. And that's why I have to keep putting myself into that time frame when I read these parts of this book because I think of like how it would be now and it's just, you can't think of it that way. Yeah, and we they definitely, throughout the book, it's a pretty common theme of just, like, they didn't know until one part, which we'll get into, like, for sure who did it. They had an idea of who could have done this, but nothing right. really concrete. Um, so we're back with Perry and Dick for a brief moment, and basically, yes, how comfortable they are with um, after the fact. Yeah. Everybody else Basically. in the town is just freaking out and these two have come in, committed it, left, and Dick's at home eating supper and watching a baseball game. Yeah, and while the town is preparing to bury the clutters, we are learning that they are preparing to take off for Mexico right. and flee the country. Right before they flee the country, they hang, quote-unquote, hang hot money, a.k.a. write bad checks, and are collecting a ton of money and are basically getting ready to... Which is how Dick ended up in jail to begin with. Exactly. Was, was that, um, which, and that becomes important um, in the rest of the book, but that's how he ended up in jail to begin with and why his, his poor parents were so embarrassed of him. Um, and th they were good people, too. We can talk more about them, but... Yeah, so now we're getting into um, sort of their um, journey into Mexico. They're starting that, and then we bounce back, obviously, to Detective Dewey and him closer examining the case in the unusual circumstances that were happening. Like, why is there a mattress under Mr. Clutter or a pillow? under Kenyon's head and why they were set up the way that they were set up and it was very obvious that the killer almost wanted to make them feel more comfortable which again when you're thinking of somebody who's just a cold-blooded murderer you're not thinking they want to make the victims feel comfortable and so it was definitely the the spark of just, oh, this is something this is beyond different. just your run-of-the-mill robbery. Yeah, he didn't just go in and get confronted with these people that he thought he wasn't going to come into contact with and and shoot them out of, like you said, necessity. This was orchestrated. And, and I mean, I know that they didn't have, you know, a ton of experience with people like this and as far as the officers go, but, I mean, they have eyes. That this wasn't something. I mean, they were tied up. I mean, this was a very obviously planned out thing, mm -hmm. and I think that was what sparked a lot of the desire, even more, to get it figured out because 
It was on purpose. They meant they went there with the intent of killing them. Yeah, so we are actually going to take a brief moment here to drink some water. We'll be right and back. Coffee break, and we will be right back. persons unknown and we are sort of getting into their time in Mexico which Julie and I both talked about we could honestly care less <laughs> um, about their time in Mexico um so I'm just going to jump forward yeah. a little bit and that's not to say that that it's not an important part of the book no I just don't think that it's something that we need to you know rehash with y'all as far as that goes it just sort of is their day-to-day stuff they're doing um what they care about what they why they're there um ultimately it talks about how they end up back in america because Mm -hmm. mexico is you know they went down there for specific purposes and it goes through that that part of the book just goes through it's it's very monotonous i think um Mm -hmm. and it's, it's important background information but i don't think that you necessarily need a us to tell you that they, you know, ate a chocolate bar for their meal. Yeah, so before they even come back to the States, however, I do think the part that's interesting is they talk about um, the Perry is basically packing up their belongings because this is like the end of the road for them in Mexico, and in those belongings is a letter from his sister which is just basically tearing them apart. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the reason why he keeps it is because his friend, um, Willie J. Willie J. wrote notes on the letter <laughs> and like what well, his take on the letter. And I just think it's really interesting. The one part that his sister that resonated with me is she says it's it is no shame to have a dirty face the shame comes when you keep it dirty so she's talking to Perry about like how there's no shame in like you shouldn't have shame in your past but you if you're going to continue then Mm -hmm. you should carry that shame like everybody has a past you need to do what is right do your time all of that, but mm-hmm. if you're going to keep doing it, then that's an issue. And what's what's funny about it, though, is that obviously, you know, when she writes that, he's in jail for a separate crime, and she has no idea what's coming for him. Um, mm-hmm. So this is and, before and, they're even found yeah, out. Yeah, this is before, before he really, you know, before they do anything, and... When she writes this, she says that, not realizing, and maybe she she sort of knew deep down, but not realizing that Perry doesn't have a uh, conscience like other people. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing. You know, if he's doing something he should be ashamed of, he's not going to feel ashamed like you or I would feel ashamed about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of go through that letter, and I thought that was interesting. And, yeah, and then you basically get to know that 
A lot about Perry's past. Perry's past, which is really, really dark and terrible. And again, we don't really need to rehash that too much right now. Probably the cause of a lot of his... Uh... Oh, absolutely. Why he is the way he is and Mm -hmm. why he doesn't care. And again, we really get into that later on in the novel during the trial and everything. And so as we wrap up Persons Unknown, you really get to see the end of their time in Mexico and them going back into the United States and what eventually a year, basically a year of just hitting the road and going yeah. from town to town and place to place. And then we enter into part three, which is answer. And I'm going to let Julie um, sort of take the reins on these next couple of parts since she is an attorney <laughs> and sort of knows the process of a lot of this. But um, right when we get into part three, answer, we learn about... Um, why they're ultimately caught yeah so i mean eventually i think they probably would have been although back in that time it's not like they had a lot of forensic evidence and they couldn't look into dna and stuff like that so there's a good chance they probably wouldn't have been caught for many years but for a uh, a young man named floyd wells he was I thought it was funny how Truman Capote described him. He said he was short and nearly chinless. Yeah. So he looked probably a lot like Truman Capote if you've seen a picture of him. Um, He had been in, he he was in the Kansas State Penitentiary when um, he found out about the murders. Um, But he said when he found out about them and um, how the murders occurred, he knew exactly who had done it. He had worked for Mr. Clutter. Um, he liked him. He he said he liked the whole family, that they were very nice people, um, that they had treated him well. And he met um, Dick in jail. Mm-hmm. And that is how all of this came about. Dick never stopped asking him about the family once Floyd kind of let on that he used to work for this guy who he elaborated on how wealthy he was. I think he he wasn't nearly as wealthy, maybe as Floyd knew, but definitely not as wealthy as Floyd portrayed him to be. And I I just don't know if that was Floyd um, exaggerating or if he really did think that, that Mr. Clutter was that wealthy. Um, he told Dick all about the, the town, the, um, the property that the clutters owned, how the house was set up, and ultimately what would be the doom of the family, he told Dick that there was a safe in the house. Um, he ended up we find out being completely incorrect about that which is the most tragic part of all of this <laughs> i think but so as soon as he hears that you know through his jailhouse radio this has happened and anybody with information there's a reward out well he hesitates for a while because yes he understands how terrible this is he he says he never thought dick was going to do it um but 
And he wanted the reward money, frankly, but he hesitated because he did not want to be a snitch. He knew mm-hmm. that it was going to be very bad for him in jail if he did snitch on this guy who had been in jail with him. Um, yeah. Keep in mind, Perry has never met Floyd Wells, and I'm pretty sure he never met him until the trial. Um, but Dick was the you know the middleman in all of this. And eventually, he did go, and um, he told the warden. He he told, or he told somebody that told the warden, and they took him seriously. And that is how he ended up. Which thank God they did. Yeah. What if they had just said, "Oh, he just wants the money"? Um, it's it. Luckily, it didn't play out that way. But he he told them everything he knew. He told them how. Um, he he never thought that it would was serious about robbing them. It was just talk. Um, he was wrong, and he told them all about it. And that is how the um, they blew the lid on this. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I think it would have been many years before this was. If they ever even yeah, if they ever out. did, it would probably be one of these like unsolved mysteries. Because um, I mean, DNA and stuff like that really wasn't a thing. They didn't have any fingerprints anywhere on anything. They well, and, really didn't have anything. And even if they had had DNA, you know, to look back on now, Perry had no children. Dick mm-hmm. had, I think, three children. Right, two or three. Yeah, but it probably also would have been so deteriorated. Yeah, right. You wouldn't have been able to pull anything from it because so, of how old the case is. It really yeah. was just unlikely that without the jailhouse snitch. And also, they burned everything. Yeah, that too. Um, without that, there would be nothing. And a lot of times, I, a lot of people, if you look at cases um, on TV and, and just, you know, in real life, a lot of people don't listen to people in jail. Um, they will, but for a majority part, a lot of these people in jail are lying. They're doing it for a, um, a benefit, um, you know, a lower sentence. Um, I think in this case, he probably was mostly concerned that he was going to be implicated in it, even though he didn't think he was doing anything but just telling the story. Yeah. Um, so you really get into they send along the information to Dewey. He gets the yeah. photos, and he is like so thrilled, so excited um, to finally have some sort of something, something, a lead, a, a concrete lead. He uh, shows the photos to his wife, and this part I thought was really chilling is she looks at the photo of dick and it's just like so grossed Mm -hmm. out and she's like think of him think of those eyes coming toward you and then she pushes the pictures back into the envelope and she's like i wish you'd never show me yeah she's just so freaked out i mean if these people murdered her friends and the family that she was close to Mm -hmm. um, i can imagine that it, it just wasn't something she was exposed to it would just be terrifying. Um, and yeah, and then you sort of go into they're interviewing his mother um, now, Dick's yeah. mother, and you get to really know him. And, and how, family. exactly, and how Perry came from this really just terrible family, and they there was a lot of alcoholism, there was fighting, there was divorce, there was death. As there was mental illness. There was mental illness. Um, 
But on the flip side, you have Dick's family who, his parents are just the sweetest. His mom, I mean, she's just devastated by it. Even the the thought that her son could be considered to be doing any of this. Um, they knew he had problems, but they did not think that, uh, you know, I don't think in her wildest dreams she could have imagined something like this. I just pictured this little old lady who, um, you know, just she worked hard and, and he even says how, even Perry says how wonderful his, how wonderful Dick's mom is. Um, Perry had uh, was going to spend the night with them, but he just knew that she didn't care for him. And, and he said that he went and got a hotel room because he just, you know, it wasn't anything against her. He just knew that she just didn't approve of him and he didn't want to make it seem like, he didn't want to make her uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But when they're interviewing her, they're they're pretty positive at that point that this is who did it. And um, then they see the gun. Um, his Dick's dad talks about the gun that um, they have in the apartment, and it's the same gun that was used, um, same type of gun that was used in the the murders. Um, and again, it's really reiterated by his mother that you know he concussed his head in yeah. the car accident. He's really never the same after that. They also talk about again. You just think of like what his life would have looked like if um, things had gone differently. <coughs> um, so you, they talk about how in back in the day he wanted to go to college, they just couldn't afford it and everything else. So it's, it's just really unfortunate. So after you know we do the interview with his family, we really again go into Perry and Dick's grand adventure across the United States and all the things they were going through to try to get money, which we won't get to into you because there's certainly a lot of it and we know we're already an hour and a half in <laughs> to this um but they do eventually uh, make their way back to their hometown and they start again hanging hot money and their intention is they go back to their hometown because dick knows that people that trust him will mm -hmm. accept his checks He'll get that money, and then they, again, make a grand plan to escape back out of the country. And they're going to leave. Again, um, but before they do that, um, you know, they had, along the way, stolen a car. And they changed they the tags, but changed the tags, but it was sort of like, basically at this point, everybody's on to them. The car is spotted in town, and arrests are made for both um, Perry and Dick and you see Detective Dewey just like elated and this was in um, you know the, the Detective Dewey had been following them in the right. town trying to find them trying to find them they do escape they make it to Vegas and they're outside of a post office picking up Perry's various belongings from Mexico and it all it took was one cop in um, Vegas which was crazy that back then they had to memorize reports that they would get in that day and he had remembered reading mm -hmm. about that specific car with plates from Kansas and to be on the lookout for it and so they find him they arrest him, him and now we're going into part four the corner
Yeah, so they, uh, once they're arrested, they, they obviously interview them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they, they keep up a, a story for a bit, um, but as Dewey kind of increases his interrogation, um, and they interrogated them separately. They were never together again after they were arrested until the trial, um, obviously on purpose. That's, that's not unusual. Um, but they, Dick is actually the first one to fold. Um, mm-hmm. And then once Perry finds out about it, he does too. I guess they figure what's the point in, uh, you know, obviously you're sp- you can remain silent. Um, that's, that's your, your right as an, a citizen. But um, they just, <laughs> they wanted to brag about it, I think. I mean. Well, I think Dick was... Just basically, again, we go back to his selfishness mm-hmm. and wanting to basically protect himself and not yeah. care about anybody else. Perry was really sticking to the story and was really concerned about his friend, yeah. not so much himself. So you sort of, again, see that almost weird loyalty that Perry has to Dick. And basically, once that loyalty and that bubble of friendship is broken by Dick, because they say to Perry, like, hey, we have Dick on record giving a statement saying that you killed all of them. Yeah, you killed them all. And you're horrible and this and that. Perry doesn't take too kindly to that. And then it's like, you know what? That's not true. Let me set the record straight and really starts to tell Mm -hmm. the tale of what unfolded that night. And they go through every single detail. Um, He, Perry, you know, just tells everything in the back of this cop car on the way back to... Holcomb, um, mm-hmm. and I I thought it was interesting. I think a main theme out of all of this is that Dick has never been alone. Dick has um, a supportive family, and he has people in his life that care about him, and Perry has no one. Mm-hmm. And so Perry attaches, like you were saying, to Dick, and, and that is his person. He's trying to protect him, and then he's just so betrayed that I think that takes over, and he would rather get his story out at that point and have it be the right one then and deal with it that way um and they go you know they they go back um and the court or the uh the trial takes place at the Finney County Courthouse um when I'm picturing all of this I'm picturing kind of a like an Andy Griffith size courthouse like a yeah. lot of the rural counties around here even um, these courthouses are one room, um, and what I thought was interesting was that um, the undersheriff and his wife live basically at the the courthouse in the jail where these people are housed, and, you know, they don't have a penitentiary or a jail in this area. They have these, like, tiny holding cells, just a few cells, um, and they said that they even had to put they put Dick in the uh, the ladies one, right? Yeah, so they had this tiny little jailhouse, and it was separated by sex, and the women's set, there was like one. one cell. And sometimes they let them just out into their apartment. But so the cell was actually a part of the apartment. Yeah, which yeah. Which is just like wild to me. But then again, you think about how many women committed a crime back then, and um, I would uh, just dare say that, a lot of 
women didn't commit too many crimes back yeah. then. And the ones that they did commit, they weren't scared of them. They were just these, you know, had gotten wrapped up into some stuff, like with oh, their yeah. husbands. Um, Domestic disputes, petty theft, maybe prostitution right. here and there, but nothing wild. And Josie, who is the undersheriff's wife, um, she's just, you know, this this awesome woman who she says she actually enjoys sometimes when there's a woman prisoner mm-hmm. because she has company. And um, she makes this, every, every, you know, meal they describe that she makes the guys when they're in jail is just... I mean, it's wonderful saying I would love to eat it. It's vegetable soup and apple pies, and um, she makes Perry's favorite Spanish rice, and she just tries so hard to make a good impression on them and to make them feel, you know, not loved, but like humans. Because mm-hmm. very quickly throughout this in the beginning of this trial, it's clear that they are not going to give a fair trial. Um, that was just yeah. incredibly obvious from the, the jump. Um, it's a small town. Um, what I thought was interesting, um, if you've ever been, if you've ever had jury duty, you know that there is a... Um, a way that a jury is selected. It's called voir dire. It's um, it's a process of dwindling down the juries by or the jurors by um, specific questions. At first, they're broad questions, and then they get much more narrow. Um, mainly, the as soon as they start this process, that's how you know that this is not going to be a fair one. Um, they talk about, first off, it's 12 men, 12 white men. They're, they're not any women on the jury. They just say that they can't do it. Um, one of the guys that they put on the jury, um, he says, you know, one of the questions is, do you believe in capital punishment? And one of the guys that they still seat on the jury um, this is where their defense attorney should have stepped in and absolutely said, no, he's not on the jury, like, yeah. cut him. Um, and you get a certain amount of strikes on each side. I failed to mention that. But um, the court also can strike someone for cause um, if they want. But this guy said, <laughs> this guy, it was just kind of, I mean, just blatant. He said, I don't normally support capital punishment, but in this case, I think I would. Yeah. And they still sat him on the jury, and I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I was I was very curious as to what your whole thought is, because, yeah, I personally thought, like, despite the horrific crime that took place, I mean, it was terrible. I really don't feel like they had a fair trial oh, because not. of that. But also... I mean, to me, the most key thing was the psychological evaluations that were done that they weren't even allowed to present in court because in Perry's case, I think it's so clear as day that you're dealing with somebody who's extremely mentally ill. Um, So that's called the McNaughton Rule. They talk about that in the thing, and I actually want to commend Capote. I mean, he's dead now, so he doesn't care, but... Um, I'd like to commend Capote on how well he, he covered the trial itself and um, getting this stuff right. The McNaughton Rule, actually, I, I looked it up earlier, but I don't think 
you know, in law school, we, we talk about the rule. We don't talk about its origin, really. But I think it started in the 50s, maybe. Like, I don't think it was around before then, which is pretty interesting because this case happened right after it, if I'm correct about the mm-hmm. timeline. Um, basically, I was talking to Johnny, my boyfriend, who's also an attorney, about this before um, me and Alicia start recording. But in law school, you basically just trying to remember things as easily and as simply as possible and he said when he was studying for the bar exam that the McNaughton rule he would remember um, if you did anything naughty and you knew about it uh, I might be paraphrasing what he said but if you did anything like that and you knew what you were doing you're not mentally ill yeah that was sort of the um the simplified version of it um, and then if you pass that, they don't let any other um, explanation in. What I was confused about, um, and I'm sure if my boss listens to this, he'll definitely correct me. Um, I was confused when, it, you know, they say, yeah, when the doctor gets on the stand and he says yes, um, they... Typically, once they answer something, they're allowed to elaborate. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know Kansas law. I'm not born in Kansas. But typically, the way you do things, if a prosecutor asks you a question or a defense attorney asks you a question, you answer it, yes or no, and then you elaborate. That's just, you're allowed to do that. But this judge did not allow it. Um and I, I thought that was interesting. It was his name was Judge Tate. Well, the he did so the doctor, um, Doctor Jones, who did the psychological evaluation, did answer for Dick. Right. And he said that yes, he thought he was fully aware of what he was doing, and the judge did allow him to elaborate further a little bit, a little bit, by yeah. saying that he knew right from wrong, and he cut it, but cut it, yeah, but the. I mean, more or less, he was just like, you're dealing with somebody who's essentially a sociopath. Which is what he would have put into evidence. Yeah, which would have just said, you're dealing with somebody who's very cocky and maybe not necessarily a killer, but somebody who's willing to do what it takes to get him to the top. Right. More or less. Right. But then um, you really get into... uh, Perry. Perry, and it is like kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. reading the psychological evaluation and well, the did, fact that it wasn't allowed to be presented. It just explains so much about Perry and how he got to this point that it's a disservice to him that he didn't get to. And, you know, as not just as a lawyer, but as a citizen, anybody that's coming into a, a trial deserves a completely unbiased trial, no matter what you've done. You have a right to um, defense attorneys that, you know, go to bat for you and and try and help you. And they just, from the jump, like, this is just not going to work. It it should have been removed. They they discussed that a lot as far as it shouldn't have taken place in that county. I absolutely agree it should not have. Um, those, Those people knew him. They knew the family. There was just so, there's only so many jurors to choose from. Um, and yeah, they, the judge, too. I mean, it's it's really clear, but... Uh, I would what did like you to, think of all of it? 
Yeah, it's just, to me, the part, like, obviously you know more about the legal process, so to you, obviously, what seems like spoke to you is just the fact that that jury shouldn't have been a jury anyway, um, and... The defense attorneys were just terrible. Awful. <laughs> and the fact that Dr. Jones did come up with the diagnosis for Perry that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, which is, which is huge. Pretty serious. And was the one to do it. But the, the whole study that they cover, the murder without apparent motive, a study in personality disorganization, was really interesting to me because it basically covered a ton of crimes that happened around the same time mm-hmm. that were very similar to what Perry did. Explained a lot of it. Just basically murder without motive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Um, thing that it says is how can a person as sane as this man seem to commit an act as crazy as the one he was convicted of meaning these people previously were put into a trial the trials did said they're completely sane people but then you look at the crimes that they commit and it's nothing that a sane normal person would do like for instance you know a laborer who strangled a 14 year old boy when the boy rejected his sexual Mm -hmm. advances advances um, you know, another man who bludgeoned to death another boy because he imagined the victim was making fun of him, and then a hospital employee who drowned a girl of nine by holding right. her head underwater. I mean, crazy stuff well, that you're like, and with no motive, clearly somebody who's sane isn't gonna do that. And and what I think is funny about that is there there is a motive. The motive is the paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and a jury can only even as you know, biased and terrible as that jury probably was going to be regardless. They can only make a decision based on um, the evidence that's before them. And since the judge, uh, the judge's job is to, is to keep things balanced and to keep, you know, it fair. And he controls what comes in. Um, And he just, by stopping at the McNaughton Rule, I'm going back to that because it's so important mm-hmm. because he didn't let that paranoid schizophrenia in. I mean, this is a guy that has, throughout the book, we see basically he has visions of Big Bird. Yeah. Like, and that is the it's first. Like angel. He talks about yeah. this big yellow bird. And I'm like, well, yeah, he's obviously got mental problems. Oh, yeah, not um, only from, like, physical trauma, but mental trauma. I mean, this is, like, basically a mess he, of a human. He knew what he was doing when he broke in. He, they knew what they were doing. He had absolutely full control over whether it was right or wrong. But these were mitigating things that could have, you know, played a big role in whether they were sentenced to death, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, so I wanted to ask you, the jury's deliberations lasted uh, 40 minutes. Was that, is that normal or is that short or what? Um, so I would say that the biggest thing I've learned from my job is that you never know what a jury is going to do, mm-hmm. civil or criminal. Um, some juries deliberate for hours. We, I think the shortest one I've ever seen was about two minutes. Um, that was not a criminal one, but I would say 40 minutes is pretty quick for a murder trial of this, you know, magnitude. And there, the there's fact just that so much be put to death. You're right. literally dealing with life or death situation. Typically, 
I would say they would take a lot longer because at least in this day and age, the evidence that would be submitted to the jury, um, there would be expert testimony. The doctor's testimony would have gotten much further. Mm-hmm. The There would be pictures. There would be, and there were pictures, then there'd be more pictures. There'd be DNA evidence. There'd be... Um, there would just be a lot more to unpack and a jury wouldn't have the chance to do it in 40 minutes, I don't think. I mean, that's not to say they wouldn't, but I think it would go much further. Um, When they're that quick, it never normally works out for the people on trial. Um, Oh, well, I just, to me... It's pretty short. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like they, like you said, they sort of had their... They knew um, going into it. Yeah, their minds made up. And and... So juries, um, just to elaborate on, on you know, the, the process for a juror it, itself, they are not supposed to discuss anything about the case once they're dismissed for the day. They're not supposed to discuss it when they're on a break. Um, they but can't you know they do all any were. research. Exactly. I mean, how could they not? It, it went over a week and a half. Um, so they went home for the weekend. You know they're talking about it. You're not supposed to talk about it with anybody. You can't soundboard. You can't do anything um, until you have all the evidence and you're in the room together. Um, they, I would bet money that that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did these people have also been talking about it for months? Exactly. Like a year before and, the, even this came up. And jury selection is supposed to weed out those people, um, which is why if it had been relocated to a different county, it may have kind of um, cut down on that. I thought that the most egregious thing about all of it, um, just to wrap this part up, the most egregious thing to me was the closing statements by the defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, they just literally assumed that the jury was going to find them guilty, and so they went into this, um, well, you know, just don't kill them, basically. Yeah. I mean, they they don't put up a closing statement. The prosecutor, who, who by trade was a defense attorney, he was mm-hmm. just brought in to be a prosecutor for this, um, his closing statement was amazing, mm-hmm. um, but it clearly shows the difference between the prosecution and the defense. And well, the they difference just between like how inept. Well, the, the defense, defense was. They say they make this offhanded comment, and then they later deny it in the appeals process about how um, they they didn't have much to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't admit that about your client. You you zealously advocate for them, and they were not doing that. Um, and and by just basically admitting that they had done it in their closing statement, those guys were all but dead before the jury walked out. I mean, so it was very obvious from the get-go that they were going to be put to death. Um, yeah, and um, obviously that is... That's what happened. (laughs) Um, So the last part of the book really was pretty interesting. It goes through, you know, death row itself, the people that are coming in and out. We get a few short um, stories about the inmates that were in there on death row with them. Um, Can I quickly, though, say how sad it was? Like, I weirdly got emotional when you're talking about um, the the wife um, when he goes... Perry is sent back to his cell for the evening before they yeah. leave to prison. 
and her having to say goodbye to him, and he's like sobbing, and she's holding his hand. And she feels just, really. She's she's developed this relationship with yeah. him. Yeah. She's taking care of him, probably in a way that Perry has never been taken care of. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. It's just I got emotional, but and anyway. the squirrel part that really I sent know. me. I was like, he oh this, no, he's squirrel. His poor little pet squirrel who had really come to rely on him just was yeah. devastated one day when he wasn't there. Yeah, and it's crazy because she tries to feed him and the little so squirrel is like, him. no, I only want my friend. It's so sad. I got really weirdly emotional. No, I mean, part. it makes total sense. That was That's the mark of, of how good of a writer he is, I think. Yeah. Um, it says a lot for Capote. Yeah, but now we're yeah. back in prison, in the prison where they were sent and get to know all that. You, you kind of just get to see their last moments and, and how they deal with it. Um, I and don't the appeals, all the appeals. I mean, it, was it takes years. Five years or something until... Which really, that's not even... I mean, as far as death row goes today, five years isn't that long of a time span for the appeals process, especially considering theirs went all the way to the Supreme Court um, a couple times. Um, they tried. They they definitely deserved a new trial. In my opinion, they deserved a new trial that ultimately would have had the same outcome. You know, that would be my desire. Um, I guess, you know, at, at that point, it really doesn't. They did it. They, they were punished. Um, I thought it was funny. Not funny, but just kind of one of those like awkward comments is that Perry didn't believe in capital punishment, but especially about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, who would? Yeah, and they do talk about the Durham rule and the whole belief of that, which is that an accused is not criminally responsible if his unlawful act is the product of mental disease or mental defect. Right. Which clearly, in Perry's case, it was. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, like, time and time again, they're being denied, denied, denied. And during their time in prison, I really loved the parts about all the people that come onto death row and, like, their stories. And obviously, yeah. Andy. Andy, who just... Wild. Dick loves Andy, but yeah. Perry just can't stand the fact that there's this kid who's really well-educated and is just... I mean, he's not, Perry is not the smartest person on death row when, when Andy walks in, and, and that was just, like, that was a super disturbing Oh, that case. whole story. Like, we could talk about that whole case for, you know, a long time. That could be a whole other podcast. Um, so. I definitely want to look into that one, but, I mean, it is a good story. It's a good book from start to finish. Yeah, um, and um, obviously, you know, you go through all that, and sort of the end and um the end was great execution we they talk about it and dewey was there yeah dewey was there for both he did not get the closure he thought he was going to get from watching it which i thought was interesting yeah it's it's like dick was pretty she was shocking how well he took it um perry was obviously to me like again Kind of heartbreaking, even though he was the one who did like actually he actually murdered the four of them. Which, but yeah, it's just sort of like the whole thing was just a little heartbreaking in many different ways. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we reach 
the absolute end where Dewey's in the um, graveyard and he sees Susan and yeah. like he gets an idea of who Nancy would have been. been. Yeah. And it's like really, I think this is such a good ending. And it's I like also kind of a full circle of life. It is moment. I thought it was interesting too that as um, as Dewey is in the cemetery, he passes on his way to the Clutter's graves. He passes Judge Tate. Yes, and so that really tells you how interconnected these people are. Like, of course, the judge knew them. He's he's literally buried right next to them. Yeah, um, and then um, also we find out you know how Bobby has remarried oh, and. Yeah. Um, it just sort of is a, it's really good closure, I think, for the book and for the story itself. Yeah. And so, I mean, it just, I think, start to finish this book is, so if you love true crime or any of that, this book is just so important to read because it really does, like, bring up and start, like you said, it really ignited. He started a literary nonfiction. I think he's credited as being the father of it. Um, yeah. And and I would say he's the reason for the... Um, he sparked the fire that is true crime now as far as the ID channel, and which I'm obsessed with. Yeah. Right? Um, and these podcasts, like, um, a favorite of ours is My Favorite Murder and um, Crime Junkie and, and those things, which, I mean... Who doesn't like to hear about this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are um, going to post on our Instagram. Um, I'm going to share several photos pertaining yeah. to the book. So I'll go ahead and share photos family of members. family members, um, Dick and Perry, just whatever I can find. I'll make sure to share that on our Instagram. And in the comments, we will obviously be having a discussion with you all. I'm also going to create some story templates so that way each and every one of you could, um, if you want, fill out those and share them with us and tag yeah. us and all that. And we can't wait to hear your thoughts. Give us some feedback, what we could improve on, what, what um, you want to hear what more you hear. of. Absolutely. And we will also, we're excited to announce um, next month's pick is going to be a uh, very different. Yeah, so it's a much <laughs> lighter read. <laughs> yeah, we're going to need a little palette cleanser, something a little bit more lighter. Next episode probably won't be as in-depth and heavy, but probably more of just a fun yeah. conversation. So our next book is going to be Meet Your Baker by Ellie Alexander. We're going to post more about it on our website. We'll have all the links where you can buy it. And just be on the lookout for that post where we'll be posting a photo of the book and everything. Uh, but until next yeah. time, y'all. Thanks uh, for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we will uh, talk crime with y'all later. Bye. Bye.